Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine where we are trying to keep you up on the latest literature one spoonful at a time. So let's take a quick look at everything that we're going to be covering from this week. First off, a lot of drugs can be given during cardiac arrest. Not all of them are helpful. What about calcium? Second, where is it better off to be intubating in pediatrics, in the emergency department or possibly in the ICU? After that, the Canadian Sickby risk score strikes again. Then, the more is so rarely the merrier when it comes to medicine. And the same can probably be said about advanced cardiac testing. And then fifth, nothing on fifth. On the blog, we've got a summary of the top articles of the year, but uh, I just decided to kind of take a break. Now then, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the enjoyable Jonathan Brewer, Aaron Lacey, Rebecca Breed, Cliff Freeman, and Clay Smith. Now then, the first article is titled The Effect of Intravenous or Intraosseous Calcium versus Saline on Return of Spontaneous Circulation in Adults with Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. You know, honestly, some of the best drugs that we have are the simplest drugs. Take magnesium, for example. I love magnesium. It works on a lot of things, more than you'd think. You can use it for asthma, eclampsia. There's evidence that it reduces pain and renal colic. It's even been shown to work for AFib in the ICU at comparable, if not better, rates than amiodarone. So, in critical conditions, like when we're doing ACLS, we like to keep things simple. Not with magnesium, but what about with calcium? Would it be appropriate to give this in arrest? It, it certainly is an appropriate treatment for many causes of arrest, like beta blocker or calcium channel overdoses, um, hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, obviously, and hypermagnesemia, because we just gave too much magnesium. Some call for it regularly, but it's not something that's given routinely, especially not if they achieve ROS quickly. Maybe it's worth a try if they're slow about achieving ROSC. This was a double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial of almost 400 patients with sustained out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in Denmark. Patients were randomized to either two doses of 5 millimoles of calcium chloride, IV or IO, versus saline. Now, not to spoil the results, but they actually planned to recruit 300 more people but stopped the trial early because of concerns for harm. And if you look at the numbers, that's probably a fair call. About 50% more people were achieving ROSC in the saline group, and twice as many had good neurological outcomes at 30 days. You might be thinking that the dose that they were using in this study isn't necessarily what you'd be calling for, but you have to take into account that this isn't the first study to look at this. Calcium's already been established not to improve survival in cardiac arrest if given routinely. Apparently that's also true for sustained arrest. In a spoonful, in adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, calcium did not improve the rates of ROSC and may even have actually been harmful when compared to just saline. Then we have the second article titled Intubation Practices and Outcomes Among Pediatric Emergency Departments, a report from the National Emergency Airway Registry for Children Near for Kids, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Now, as much as one in five of every pediatric intubation is associated with adverse events, Hunting down where we can improve is absolutely essential for bettering the care of our patients. So I'll, I mean, I don't like to foster competition between departments. If we already have the data, then we might as well look at who's better at intubating. Outcomes can differ or could differ between the ER and the ICU. 
So maybe we can learn from each other. You know, a little bit of friendly rivalry. That's all. That's all. This was a database study taken from the Near for Kids database from 2015 to 2018, looking at ER versus ICU intubations. Now, these are very clearly quite different patient populations. You have to keep that in mind. The ICU intubations vastly outnumbered the ER intubations by more than a factor of 10. And the reasons for intubation were also different. The ER had more intubations for shock and neurological deterioration, and the ICU had relatively more cases of respiratory decompensation. To top it all off, the ER used video laryngoscopy almost twice as much as the ICU. In terms of severe adverse tracheal intubation attempts, as which was the primary outcome, which of course is a composite outcome of pretty much all the bad stuff that can happen during or around intubation, there's actually no difference between the ER and the ICU, just under 6% for both groups. For all adverse events, not just tracheal intubation adverse events, they were also similar, and so was first-pass success rates. There were slightly lower rates of oxygen desaturation in the emergency department group, but in the ICU, they were more likely to need intubation because of respiratory depression, so really not all that surprising. In a spoonful, in a large database study, the safety of tracheal intubation was the same in the emergency department as in the ICU, despite differences in indications and the emergency department using more video laryngoscopy. So what follows is the third article, titled Personalized Risk Prediction Following Emergency Department Assessment for Syncope, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, syncope is a pretty common diagnosis, and it's not a joke either. There's a significant proportion of these patients that have something serious going on. Remember, the syncopal episode is essentially caused by your brain not getting enough blood. Even if it's just momentarily, it's still pretty scary. So to hopefully help with these patients is the Canadian syncope risk score, which can be used to help with risk stratification. This study used pool data from two large cohort studies, the original derivation cohort and the validation cohort, both for the Canadian syncope risk score. This sample spans 11 Canadian emergency departments over 8 years to include more than 8,000 patients over 16 years old with syncope. Now using the risk score, they were able to divide up patients into risk categories. Low and very low risk, they had less than a 1% chance of death or adverse outcomes in 30 days. Then there was the medium risk group, which had a 7.8% chance of serious outcomes and a less than 1% chance of death. And the high risk group which had a 20% chance of serious outcomes and death in 4-6%, although the high-risk group was only 6% of the overall cohort. In line with pretty much every other risk score, this means that low-risk patients can probably go home, high-risk patients probably need admission, and then you can use shared decision-making with close follow-up for the middle group. This is all nice, and I think anyone would be justified in using this risk score. But what... I'm not sure about is how often this score actually changes anyone's mind about anything. Like it's great to use, but if they had none of the risk factors of badness, I was probably going to send them home anyways. And if they look really sick, then obviously they were going to stay. The well score and the D-dimer have been shown to save people from unnecessary imaging that would have happened otherwise. Is this score doing the same thing? That's the question that I really want answered. How many patients could have been sent home, but were not? and can be sent home because of this risk score. For me, it feels more like this risk score is actually pushing me towards more testing because it calls for a troponin, which I otherwise would not have gotten in many of my syncope patients. In a spoonful, the Canadian syncope risk score can be used to effectively risk stratify patients presenting to the emergency department with syncope to confidently discharge those who are low risk. 
And then after that, we have the fourth article titled, Major Adverse Cardiac Events After Emergency Department Evaluation of Chest Pain Patients with Advanced Testing, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. The leading cause of death in the United States is coronary artery disease, which is why it's no surprise that we're really worried about pretty much every patient that comes in with chest pain, and it's often our job to make sure that it's not a cardiac problem. These authors are offering to help out with that. They did a systematic review and meta-analysis to look at rates of major adverse cardiac events for one year after patients had a negative advanced cardiac test and were determined to be low to intermediate risk by TIMI or heart scores. That is that these patients had a negative CTA, ECG stress test, a stress echo, or a negative myocardial perfusion scintigraphy. Overall, the rates of major adverse cardiac events within 12 months for these patients was less than 2% for all of the testing options. We can take this to mean that if your patient has chest pain and a negative test by any of those measures within the last year, as well as being low risk, then further advanced testing likely isn't going to be fruitful for that patient. The new American Heart Association guidelines, which we've actually covered here on the podcast before, really back this up as well. And so I'd like to leave with some wise words. Don't just do something, stand there. And I tried to figure out exactly who that's quoting, but it's harder to figure out than I thought it would be. I'm not entirely sure, and the internet doesn't seem to agree either. In a spoonful, there isn't much to gain from advanced cardiac testing if your patient already had a negative test within the last 12 months and is low to intermediate risk by risk scores. So that's our four articles for this week. What did we learn? Let's wrap up. First off, reserve your use of calcium during cardiac arrest for specific cases when it's actually indicated. General use is not recommended. Second, despite doing it differently and for different reasons, it's just as safe for children to be intubated in the ER as in the ICU. Third, the Canadian syncope risk score honestly seems promising once again. This time the authors actually made up a nice risk calculator with printable patient infographics. If you want to check that out, there's a link in our blog. And fourth, Clay Smith actually taught me a new word this week on the blog, and I'm about to butcher its pronunciation, Verschlindersbund, which means to make something worse in the attempt to improve it. This applies to repeating negative advanced cardiac testing in low to intermediate risk patients who have chest pain and present to the emergency department. Now then, you've earned them and we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership that we have with Hippo Education. All the details for that, if you'd like them, are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles summarized can also be found there. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.